Up first here, though, lots of eye rolling going on at yet another massive party, a DJ set up and everything at English Bay this weekend. It's just too much. We saw VPD hard at work to disperse the crowd. Uh, even they had their chopper involved with the spotlight and try and, and figure things out. And earlier today, Mayor Kennedy Stewart, Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart, actually held a press briefing on another topic, but he did delve into uh, the police response at English Bay a little bit. Have a listen. So when we saw gatherings over the, the past few months, um, I was informed by uh, Chief uh, Palmer that uh, the VPD, and I remember the chief is in charge of operations of the VPD, said they were going to adjust their tactics. And I really commend them for what they did over the weekend, uh, especially working across the region with the RCMP to employ uh, helicopters to uh, to uh, use spotlights and disperse the crowds at English Bay. Um, Again, I know, uh, I, I feel deeply worried about police when I hear that uh, folks on the beach were throwing bottles at them. Um, you know, we want to make sure that our officers get home safely every night uh, when they're finished work. Uh, and this is no way to, uh, to act. So uh, I do support the police in the, in the efforts that they've been uh, making, these increased efforts uh, under very strenuous circumstances. No question. Strenuous circumstances across the board. Lots more than just those party goers at English Bay troubling uh, Metro Vancouver in terms of of uh, trying to keep our police force bolstered in all areas. Earlier today on Mornings with Simi, uh, Councillor Pete Fry actually uh, made a point of calling on more action from Park Board. You know, and I think that there's got to be a better approach to dealing with especially some of these sort of anti-masker rallies that are happening and i and i think part of that is is um not just the police but but i think we as a city um and our, and our park board could probably do a better job of uh ensuring that 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 we are using all the tools available to us I, you know i i couldn't under normal circumstances i'm not allowed to just go down and set up an event a park so many people are having this conversation privately, publicly, and wanting to talk it through on radio. Well, it's a hot seat and uh, very grateful for our next guest who agreed to be in that hot seat. Vancouver Park Board Commissioner John Cooper is on the line. John, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me as always, Jody. Well, let's start there with what Councillor Fry was referencing so many of us are wondering, how did we get to the point where the party was so well underway, a DJ set up, and the police are coming in to break things up at 10 p.m.? Why are these parties allowed to start in the first place? Where Where's the disconnect here, in your opinion? Well, I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about the mayor's comments, because this is a mayor who, who has actually just frozen the police budget this year, and which, which is really means a decrease for the VPD. And we know that the VPD is heavily taxed across the city. Yeah. So I think it's rather ironic that the mayor and Councillor Fry, who both uh, supported that that uh, freezing, are now you know praising the VPD for their good work. Uh, I've always been a big supporter of the work of the VPD, and uh, under very difficult circumstances. And I think they did a really good job, I think, uh, using that uh, helicopter, which is actually a shared resource between uh, uh, police forces and the RCMP. It's called Air One, and the VPD have access to it whenever they need it. And I, I think that was a really good a good move. But um, you kind of can't have it both ways as the mayor. You can't say, well, we're, 
we're not going to fund you with the money you want, but we're going to expect you to do all these other things as well. So I, I, I'd like to call that out. I can see you would like to call that out. And I should point out that you are the MPA candidate for mayor. Uh, so not a surprise to me that you'd want to take my question and answer it by reflecting on what the current mayor is uh, speaking to. And you do make a b- good point. I, I was unaware that that Councillor Fry uh, voted to uh, freeze the budget for the VPD. There is a disconnect there for sure. I get that. Yeah, it's, there is. This is not one so, area's so that, issue, but the park board piece is one that is quite frustrating mm-hmm. for many. And I, yes, I, I feel that yeah. you can speak to that. Yes, I can. Absolutely. So the Park Board Ranger program is, you know, quite a small program. People don't realize how small it is. At any one time, we might have six or eight rangers uh, on patrol for the whole of the 240 parks across the city. Their job primarily is uh, education, making sure people know the rules and, and, and working with them. But obviously, with a force that small, we rely on the VPD and also uh, the city bylaw officers in terms of, uh, of ticketing and, and bylaw infractions and that sort of thing. And I know that our new general manager has been working uh, closely with uh, Chief Adam Palmer at VPD and also the Good. bylaw enforcement folks. For instance, a couple of weeks ago when there was an anti-mask uh, rally, they, you know, the, uh, the bylaw people were there and they were getting a ticket, I believe, every four hours. So, uh, you know, there's things we can do and there's things we can't do. And one thing is when you have a, uh, a large crowd like you have at English Bay, that certainly is not something that our park rangers could deal with. No, I get that. With John Cooper, uh, who is longtime park board commissioner and uh, running for mayor in 2022 uh, for mayor of Vancouver. And John, we talked about countless times we've talked about uh, the 420, you know, and everybody says, well, why not just not let them set up in the first place? Right. Instead of trying to disperse 30,000 people or 5,000 or 100 or however it ends up being the people having an event in a park without a permit. How do we stop them from setting up? Because understanding there's a DJ set up at English Bay. Even I know there's a party coming up on Saturday night at English Bay. Yeah. I have no interest in going to the party at English Bay, but I know it's there. And, and Councillor Fry was referencing on Mornings with Simi that the anti-masker events, uh, protests, uh, actually store some of their equipment for easy setup in the parks. Are you aware of that? No, I'm not aware of that. Um, they may have it in a truck close by. But, but I, I agree with you. I, you know, I've called this out a number of times over many, many years uh, on your show. And, of course, you know, I'm one of seven commissioners, so right now the NPA doesn't hold the majority on the board. But, yeah. but it, I do agree that, for instance, 420, uh, a more action could be taken to prevent the setup. For instance, you could close off Beach Avenue and the parking lots and not allow those trucks access to set up a stage yeah. and set up their paraphernalia and all the things that they do. So I think you and I are pretty aligned <laughs> on that particular topic. Uh, the difficulty have without, uh, without majority on the board, it's hard to make that happen. But I've certainly been pushing for that. And, you know, I've, I've been on record for a long time uh, saying that we, we need to do a better job and be more proactive, I think. Jody Vance in for Jill today, and we're talking about the crowds at English Bay, another weekend of parties. I mean, there are people who are scofflaws all over British Columbia. Most British Columbians, however, are really 
all in on bending the curve down. And that is reflective in our most recent COVID-19 numbers. Again, uh, programming note that we will be bringing you the in-person briefing from Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix at three o'clock today here on CKNW. But in the meantime, like we're all holding on. We're trying to do our best. We're waiting for our vaccine booking or our first or second dose, whatever it might be, the first shot, the one shot summer. We just need to to keep it all together, people are at their wits end and certainly seeing a crowd at English Bay throwing bottles at police officers trying to just ask them to go home is making many of us, well, rather upset. And we're wondering how that party even got started. I wonder what you think on this. How could we do better at not seeing these sort of gatherings happen in the first place. 604-280-9898, 604-280-9898, or star 9898 is a free call on yourself. We're with uh, John Cooper, who is Park Board Commissioner, longtime Park Board Commissioner, and the NPA's candidate for mayor of Vancouver running in 2022. It feels so odd to say that in May of 2021 that you're the candidate for mayor in, in 2022, but this is the reality we're living in right now, John. And, and when you were speaking prior to the break about um, you know, the relationship with the VPD and the need to work together and come together, what, what would you do if you were in the mayor's office in this moment? Well, I think, you know, one of your suggestions, and, and I think it's a good one around the, uh, you know, Perhaps reassigning uh, some bylaw officers to some of these some of these duties. We also usually have the VPD uh, Beach Patrol, but it generally starts uh, on the main long weekend. So yeah. I, th- I think a good idea would be to move move that up because having eyes and presence there uh, through the day helps to kind of tamp things down, keep people just um, you know aware that um, they're on a public beach and and we need to look after each other and. Everybody wants to be safe. I mean, we all want to get outside. Yeah. We're being encouraged to get outside, and certainly the park board has a big role in in having these spaces where people can get outside safely. So let's just, you know, let's let's keep that curve bending down. I think we're we're on a good track. Let's keep her going. Let's keep her going, and uh, let's keep these phone lines going. You're lining up six zero four two eight zero ninety eight ninety eight. Terry in Vancouver, you're up first. Welcome to the show. Hi. Yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't. Uh, not speaking about the park partying issue. It was something okay. else. Um, what I'm concerned about is I ride my bike casually on the seawall. First question being, is it going to be taken away from us again? Um, second question being, is there anything can be done about these super speeder cyclists that are riding along Beach Avenue and through the park that are just not stopping for people that are trying to cross the road? I mean, I'm 61. I almost got hit twice on Sunday. And, you know, where there's a stop sign even trying to cross. That's my question. Two excellent questions, Terry. John? Sure. So the first one is the new uh, modified transportation plan uh, in Stanley Park will not have the seawall, iconic uh, seawall bike path uh, closed this time. So there will still be that ability for people to to ride that. And that's probably one of the most beautiful cycling routes in the world. So uh, I hope you're down there and I hope you enjoy it. Um, So so that's the first one. And the speeding bikes, you know, it seems to be, you know... um, a growing problem, and I think what we're seeing uh, particularly too is a lot of um, electric assist bikes, yeah. and uh, they're pretty quick. So I think people sometimes don't realize how quick they're going. And um, I find myself, you know, the the um, you know pedestrians are supposed to have the right of way crossing 
uh, a bike path. That seems to be uh, missing, and uh, I think we need um, more signage, and we need to be uh, a little more proactive on that on that front as well. So I, I think the caller is is exactly right on, and pedestrian safety Reese, yeah. should be the number one priority. It should be number one, and I have an idea for that, and I have an e-bike, so I, I agree with you. They they go a little faster than I would be able to pedal on my own without the assist. Speed bumps. Let's put some speed bumps in Stanley Park on the bike path and on the roadway. I'm totally down with regular and consistent speed bumps. Let's go to Dave in East Vancouver. Dave, welcome to the show. Oh, hi, yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I just want to agree with Mr. Cooper there that the mayor has – I feel he's created this environment of lawlessness in Vancouver where, of course, these people down in English Bay feel that they can just get away with it. I mean, you look at Strathcona Park, you know, there's an RV camp next to my boys' high school in East Vancouver where there's all kinds of things going on. There was a death there last month. They had a, yeah. the school was shut down because one of these, he just doesn't act on it. I don't know if he's afraid of the, the his image and that the people are going to think that he's being heavy-handed. And I just want to ask Mr. Cooper something because I drove my bike by Strathcona right after they did the they tried to do the closing down. Were the park board rangers asked to have been forced to wear body armor? Because I saw people wearing full-on black jackets and body I armor to go down there I, to do their job. Dave, I literally have ten seconds for John to re- respond. Body armor? No. Uh, I'm not aware of that, but that would be an operational decision. It has would have nothing to do with the uh, the commissioners. And certainly there is a growing encampment on the street there, and now that's in the mayor's uh, jurisdiction, and he should get yeah, on it yeah. right away because the park is now clear. But uh, we've got a whole chop shop on the street there, and he needs to show some leadership. We're going to stay focused on that piece. Thanks for the heads up on that, and thanks for all your calls. I'm sorry I couldn't get to more of you. As always, John Cooper, a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for being available. Thank you, Jody. Jody Vance in for Jill on this Monday. You know the current temperature of gang activity in Metro Vancouver is red hot. That's an understatement. We are continuing to cover this story as law enforcement works really, really hard to rein in criminals who are just brazenly battling in our streets. Sergeant Frank Jang of IHIT on the uh, level of public impact here. Have a listen. They waged war on us, the community, and all that is decent about our community when they opened fire in North Langley at a skating complex where there's a daycare putting young children and parents in danger. They put us in danger when they opened fire at a skate park in Coquitlam and at a shopping mall in Langley where parents and young children go to buy sporting goods and toys for birthday parties. And again, they waged war on us, the community, when they opened fire in a public place, such as Market Crossing, putting patrons who are simply enjoying an evening outside. Certainly the public feels caught in the crossfire of what very much feels like war, whether it's a war on the public or a a gang war. I guess it's semantics, right? Well, according to award-winning investigative journalist on the crime beat at uh, the Vancouver Sun, you know her, Kim Bolin. If you don't, you should be reading and following Kim Bolin, for that matter, one of the best follows on Twitter uh, for ongoing information when it comes to this ongoing gang violence that just is escalating to new heights in Metro Vancouver and across British Columbia, really. She was on the Mike Smith Show today, and here's Kim Bolin's take on that 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 branding of what's going on right now. Now, what is going on now meets any sort of definition 
uh, common sense definition of a gang war. They're shooting yeah. at each other. They're hunting each other. You know, they, they have an objective, which is to eliminate their enemy. And interestingly, in so many of the court cases I have covered related to this gang war, and it's a term I will use, yeah. uh, these guys themselves call it a war. I remember covering uh, part of the Cory Valley murder trial. He was a United Nations gang hitman convicted of a very brazen shooting in Langley outside a restaurant back in 2009. One of the key witnesses, a former gang member, testified uh, during the war, and then he continued. And it just hit me. Oh, my God, these guys see themselves as being at war. Fascinating what Kim was saying there. Kim Bolin, as I said, such a great follow on social media and someone you must be reading at the Vancouver Sun. It wasn't that long ago, just just on, over an hour ago, uh, when the Vancouver police held a press briefing and police chief Adam Palmer uh, was not mincing words at all when it came to his team's mission to halt the violence. We're going to take a professionally aggressive approach to targeting you and we'll do everything in our legal authority and power to keep our communities safe from you. When we investigate you, we will look at all means possible to disrupt and stop your activities. In addition to criminal sanctions, our investigators will seize your cars, will seize your homes, will seize your apartments and other valuables that you have gained through the proceeds of crime. We'll use every investigative technique and lawful means possible to disrupt this gang violence. It's not too late for some to get out. If you don't want to go to jail or get killed by a rival gang member, there are resources available, and police are always willing to work with people who want to come forward. That is Chief Adam Palmer. Now it's a helpless feeling to wonder if your outing for essential supplies or work or might land you in this crossfire. Helpless, too, are those who know what's happening but fear retaliation if they try and reach out and help law enforcement. Our next guest is here to help those individuals. Executive Director of Metro Vancouver Crime Stoppers, uh, Linda Annis, is on the line. Hi there and welcome. Thanks for having me today. I'm very interested to hear about the announcement that was made today in terms of an injection of some financial support for Crime Stoppers. Can you tell us about that? Well, we know for every crime, someone out there has something of value to the police, but oftentimes they're afraid to report. They're afraid for retaliation of themselves, their family, or their friends. So Crime Stoppers provides the opportunity to provide any information that you suspect may be useful about gang activity or gun violence to Crime Stoppers anonymously. Even if someone's arrested, goes to jail, whatever, they will still not know your identity. And I think that's absolutely critical at this time. The uh, province of British Columbia has given us $200,000 to create an awareness campaign so that people understand how Crime Stoppers works. And this will be done in partnership with a couple of our uh, very key um, supporters, DDB and uh, Patterson Outdoor, just to mention a few. Yeah. Uh, the money that the government is giving us will cover the production costs for producing these materials. That is exceptional to get the word out because I know there are a lot of people who assume that Crime Stoppers is very much part of law enforcement and it's not. It is not. We're a not-for-profit. We operate completely independently of the police. Uh, we are open um, 
24-7. We take tips in 115 different languages, and we take that information, we look at it, make sure that no one's identity can be revealed, remove any of that information, and forward it off to the police. We're completely independent of the police. Okay, so Linda, with somebody listening right now who knows... um, Maybe somebody in their family, extended family, loves that family member, but knows that they are entrenched in in the gang lifestyle. What information would they want to gather and how would they then communicate it safely to Crime Stoppers? Whatever they know or they suspect, they should call Crime Stoppers. And Crime Stoppers is very easy to reach. You can reach us by phone at 1-800-222-TIPS, or you can visit our website, www.solvecrime.ca. One thing I just wanted to mention, Jody, if I may, we ran a similar campaign a few years ago, and when we did, there was 145 people that were arrested with either gang affiliation or caught with guns. And 219 guns received. So the program works well, but we just count on people to provide us with the information. So it's even the hearsay thing. It's not like you need to gather evidence or you're going to be the person who's going to be wearing a wire going in somewhere. This is just simply reaching out, going 222 tips and saying, hey, this is what I know. I'll leave it in your capable hands. That's absolutely correct. If you suspect something or you've seen something, say something to Crime Stoppers. You can save a life and not just, you know, a gang member's life, but an innocent bystander as well. Yeah, that's an important piece. Linda, can you stay with me? Um, I'm going to open up the phone lines. I just want to take a quick break here. Do you have time to stay with me for another few minutes? I sure do. Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett on this Monday. And it is a Monday after a weekend where many were wondering if they should move freely around the city, go sit on a patio, a very viral story on our CKNW and Global News uh, social media, where a former gang cop had basically said, you know, if you see a bunch of gangsters sitting on a patio, maybe don't go to that restaurant, which leads so many of us to say, how are known gangsters sitting on a patio in Vancouver, causing us to then pivot. It, it is it is an odd reality that we live in, N- living in plain sight, known to police. How often do we hear that term, known to police, uh, it, known gang activities? We need that knowledge of gang activities to be delivered to the police in a meaningful way where, where charges uh, can be laid and punishments uh, put forward that keep these gangbangers off the city streets where right now a war is happening. I want to know what you think about uh, curbing the gang violence in Metro Vancouver and how you feel about Crime Stoppers, because Linda Annis is with us, the executive director of Metro Vancouver Crime Stoppers. And Linda is here to answer your questions. If you are thinking, hey, I have a tip, but I'm afraid to give it because I don't really believe that I won't be dragged into it. And then I will feel the repercussions or my family will feel the repercussions. So if you've got questions about that, 604-280-9898, star 9898 is a free call on your cell. And we start with Ron in New Westminster. Ron, thanks for calling. Yeah, hello, Jody and Linda. Um, part of the problem is with Crime Stoppers, I think a lot of people are discouraged from reporting because they don't see the results. And I'll give you a good example. Now, you just mentioned uh, punishment and charges. Um, they really, they stopped uh, a car the other day, I don't know if it was the RCMP or, or uh, police, um, they found the occupants had an illegal firearm, and I believe there were drugs in the car. And yet, 
both people were released without charges. How does that happen? Yeah, justice system is a little broken when it comes to the consequences piece, Ron. I feel that. I remember hearing that story. They were pulled over, I believe it was on Highway 1. And Linda, the, it's the discouragement piece of that side of the equation. And yet Crime Stoppers is an opportunity to get that first domino pushed forward, as you said, prior to the break. Even saving one life, it's worth it to make that call, that anonymous call. It absolutely is. And, you know, the whole premise around anonymity, we know people know things about, uh, you know, activities that are happening that aren't legal, and they're afraid to come forward and to, you know, call the police because they don't want anyone to know who's reporting. So they, you know, Crime Stoppers really provides that opportunity, because if you do call us, um, you know, you do remain anonymous, and I... And, and sometimes you might expect that the results will happen immediately, but some of these things do take time. You know, there's a long investigative period um, because it might not just Im- involve what you're calling about, but it could be a much larger picture as well. Well, that's a good point. Good, good point there, as you could just be a piece of a puzzle that could actually create those consequences that we're all hungry for. Phone lines are lit up here, 604-280-9898, 604-280-9898. Chris in Langley, you're up next. Welcome to the show. Yeah, hi, hi Chris. Uh, so just another system that could be added to this. Uh, you know, we had this problem with gangsters not long, well, 10 years, 15 years ago when I was going to the clubs. Yep. and instilled yep. this uh, system called Bar Watch which, uh, you know, you scan your ID and uh, any known gangsters weren't allowed in and kind of stopped them right at the door. And so kind of to touch on your point of how these people just hiding in plain sight or, or kind of not hiding, but, you know, coming into our uh, into the establishments that we all frequent, uh, you know, put bar watch into the restaurants and shut that down. You know what, Chris, I like that idea. Having been a longtime server in downtown Vancouver, and we would know when the drug squad and the gang squad were on patrol and exactly who they were looking for. And when Bar Watch came into play, it it did have an impact. It did make a difference. I think all of these are pieces of a really important puzzle. But Linda, with, with regard to Crime Stoppers and what we saw Chief Adam Palmer do today, which was highly unusual, putting up the photos of six known uh, gang-involved uh, criminals, I guess, would be the tag for them. But gangsters, what's the right, what's the right term? But putting, they, it's, not that, it's not that police need them to be identified. They need to know what they're up to. And to figure that out, they do need the tips that come through Crime Stoppers, right? We really need the tips and we need to see the photos because we then know when we're someplace, uh, we know who these people are. Um, To your point earlier, Jody, the city belongs to us, not to the gangsters, and we need to take control of it. And one of the ways that a resident can get involved is if they think something uh, is untoward, either, you know, in gang activity, a suspected crime, or that they think somebody's got a weapon or whatever it might be, they really should call someone. And Crime Stoppers is such a great opportunity because of the anonymity piece. And it's an easy phone number to remember. It is. It's 1-800-222-TIPS. That one is embedded in my mind being a born and raised Vancouverite because I remember the Gangs and Guns campaign of, of before and how it worked before because we had that in the back of our minds. It wasn't like, oh my goodness, I need to call 911 right now because of what I saw. It is, I need to call 1-800-222-TIPS and then leave it in the very capable hands of the people at Crime Stoppers. Let's get Bill in on the conversation. Bill in North Van, welcome. Yeah, my question is, 
why is it when every every time this happens, the police say they know who these gang guys are, they know who where they live, they know why don't they post their pictures like you do when somebody who's being released after serving some kind of prison term and they want to warn, warn the neighborhood that this guy's now living in your neighborhood? Why don't they just read? Yeah. They did that. Actually, Bill, you know what? Great, very topical because just like two hours ago, in a very unusual move, the Vancouver police chief stepped before a podium and said, Look, here are six of the worst offenders that we need your eyeballs on. And if you see these people, they are deeply involved in the violence that is currently being waged on the streets of Metro Vancouver. You make a very, very good point. I want to thank Linda Annis, the executive director of the Metro Vancouver Crime Stoppers, for being with us and sharing the knowledge, the the piece of this puzzle, the the anonymity involved in making that phone call. 1-800-222-TIPS. Linda, thank you for doing this. My pleasure as always, Jody. Jody Vance in for Jill today. Uh, how many times have you said, have you been vaccinated? Which one? <laughs> Lots of conversations. I uh, totally have said that more times than I care to even admit. Whenever I have the opportunity to cross paths with somebody, it's like, so have you got yours yet? Which one? Lots of conversations in BC sounding like that. Thankfully, we are seeing vaccine flood into our province and, and are looking forward to more uh, new- rollout. Oh, gosh, I can't wait. As a mother of a 13-year-old, I can absolutely not wait for the hints we've been hearing that this week we will hear in British Columbia how the 12-plus set might be getting vaccinated and when. Uh, of course, the programming reminder here, uh, as you heard Safiya say that Dr. Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix, the, the presser at 3 o'clock, will be live here on CKNW uh, and discussions, of course, on the Linda Steele show. Uh, right now, though, I want to get more into the specifics of vaccination in Canada. And to do that, we bring in the one and only Shachi Curl, the president of the Angus Reid Institute. Shachi, thank you for being here. Always, always honored when you ask, Jody. How could I not be? It's so great to talk about not COVID numbers and percentage of numbers and new cases and our number. Instead, we're talking about vaccines. Have you got them? Which one? What are we doing? How close are we? How much is that percentage so important to us getting through the, the final phase of this pandemic? So let's dive into what you've learned in your most recent polling of Canadians. Right. We, as you know, at the Angus Reid Institute, have been tracking and tracking and tracking uh, these data and Canadian opinions as to whether they plan to be vaccinated. I mean, for a while, it was a hypothetical. Our polling goes all the way back to to last summer, where we said, when and if a vaccine becomes available to you. Um, And now now we're into a time where we're seeing nationally, at the national level, Four-fifths, 82% of Canadians, and a good chunk of those right here in B.C., it actually rises to 90% in B.C., saying uh, they've either already received a dose or they are planning to be vaccinated as soon as possible. And so really the narrative, the story here over the last several months, really going back to December, has been a story of uh, starting out, Canadians, British Columbians, a little more unsure, not sure. Maybe I want to hang back a bit. Maybe you want to see if anybody else grows a second head or yeah. has really uh, bad reactions. And, and I acknowledge for some, there, there have been some really serious reactions, particularly around blood clots. So I'm not minimizing that. But no, there, no. There, there were a lot of folks really hanging back saying, maybe I'll get it. I'll get it eventually. There was also a really big chunk of people saying, 
uh, way back months ago, we're not sure if we want to be vaccinated at all. Uh, Every time we've seen surges of vaccine coming into the country, we've seen something else. People are very kind of seeing is believing in their reactions. And every time more people that they know in close proximity to them have been vaccinated, or in this case, now they're, they're being vaccinated themselves, the more they want it, right? The vaccines are here. I know someone who got it. It's all worked out well. Give me the damn dose. And I think that that urgency has really also been driven by the seriousness of the third wave. The third wave has been a terrible, awful thing. Um, I think it also drove, however, a lot of people in this province and in this country to figure out that if there is a way out of this, uh, it goes through the needle in your arm and they want that needle now. That's it. This is our shot.ca. I'm wearing that T-shirt in a huge way, just spreading the word and talking about hesitancy. You got a T-shirt. I mean, like, I'm South Asian. Hey, Task Force, where's my T-shirt? set this girl up. I'm going to get you one. I will will move heaven and earth. I, I know people. We'll get it. We'll we'll get you one because it's just it's sharing the awareness for those who might be hesitant. But boy, I got to say, Shachi, it makes my heart explode with pride for Canadians and particularly British Columbians to be embracing science to the degree of nine zero percent. Ninety percent are either already vaccinated or definitely planning on getting vaccinated. Those are astounding polling numbers to me. Those are big, big numbers. And what they tell us is the other really important thing here is that they tell us uh, it's quite possible if everybody keeps that up and everyone is able to avail themselves of the vaccines that they say they want to get, we can theoretically reach a really good herd immunity threshold. And there was a big outstanding question about that in places like Saskatchewan and Alberta, especially where vaccine hesitancy or vaccine refusal was still pretty high in those provinces. And again, we're seeing big, big numbers shifting in Alberta where vaccine hesitancy was as high as almost half back at the end of January now has dropped all the way down to 17% in that province. That's big, big shift. Wow. And we're yeah. also seeing the numbers dropping in places like Saskatchewan, Atlantic Canada. And Jody, let me say who I'm really proud of about all of this. It's Tell those me. Gen Xers who stepped up for AstraZeneca. Because another big takeaway. From, yes, I can hear you clap. Totally. I'm a Gen uh, Xer and I am very happy, of, ha- proud of my people. Because we're like, let's do this for our parents, for our grandparents, for our children, for our neighbors, for our society. I'm running headlong, well, uh, shoulder long, into the very first vaccine made available to me. Let's talk about AZ. Mm-hmm. And so a big part of what I've been wondering about as a pollster and also as someone who knows a whole lot of people in her life who got AZ, uh, did they have regrets, right? Because what was yeah. the chump factor around this? It went from being take this shot because maybe it's not so good for the baby boomers to, oh, we're going to pull this shot because we're really not very sure it's a good shot. Uh, and remember, the National Advisory Council on Immunization got in there, muddied the waters at one point and said, well, it's not the that preferred shot. Yeah. So how did people feel about that? And what we find with new data that's out today as part of this poll, which uh, if anyone wants to get deeper into can look at it, angusread.org online, shows that like all but a tiny, tiny fraction of the people who received AstraZeneca have regrets about it. So half of them are, are like you, so happy, 
so confident in their decision, no regrets whatsoever. You've got another big chunk of people who say, look, if I had a choice, I probably would have chosen Pfizer or Moderna. But guess what? I feel okay about this. What's done is done. I stand by my decision. And you've only got a very tiny 8% who say that they've either had second thoughts or they completely regret their decision. So, you know, uh, when you hear Sir John Bell at Oxford talking about the safety of this vaccine and really kind of jamming a thumb in the eye of, of some medical health officials in this country who have made sort of one decision and then another decision, said one thing and then another thing, it has meant a massive amount of mixed messaging. But for the yeah. people who took it, they say, I feel fine and I feel very good about my decision. And that is so important to to consume and to share, right? We need to share that information because for, for me personally, I kept watching the places where AstraZeneca was the primary vaccine and how those areas were doing. I mean, we look at the UK. I did a backflip when I heard that, that England had, had gone one full day with no deaths. I mean, this is... This is our goal, right? We should be more afraid of COVID-19 than of, than of any side effect from any of these vaccines that have proven to be incredibly uh, effective, incredibly effective at protecting against severe illness, hospitalization, or death. Because that was another piece of the AstraZeneca puzzle prior to the, the VIT, the blood clot, the, the issues, the rare uh, side effects that could happen. At first it was, well, I mean... Pfizer and Moderna, the efficacy is so much oh, better. Oh, I know, I mean, like, like AstraZeneca's uh, been the ginger-headed stepchild. It's like the middle <laughs> child of vaccines. But, you know, it's, it's the people who interact with this middle child seem to be okay with it. Yeah, and really enjoy them and find them fascinating and fabulous and, and very protective. Right. Oh, my gosh, that's the best line ever. Shachi, I want to stay with you, please. Do you have time to hang on for another segment? Uh, you know, oh, Jody, ask me Can back you? tomorrow, but I can't do it today. Okay. I'm sorry. Okay, I love you. I love you for doing okay, it. And that, I'll leave you on that final fabulous line. I'm going to need that coming into our next segment. Thank you for that. We're going to open up the phone lines anyway. Shachi Curl, the president of Angus Reed Institute. And as mentioned, angusreed.org if you want to read uh, all about how great we're doing with vaccines. Always a pleasure to hang out with you, girl. Thank you. Jody. Jody Vance in for Jill today. Now, I'm not sure if you were watching trends on social media on this beautiful sunny weekend, but boy, oh boy, a former child star in Ricky Schroeder, or excuse me, he likes to be called Rick now, uh, went really super viral after he posted a video of outright harassment. He actively harassed an employee of a Costco employee named Jason. Yeah, in, in California. Jason, boy, I, Jason needs a raise and a promotion. Here's just a small snippet of Rick Schroeder on Jason. What's your name? My name is Jason. And who do you, what do you do here? I'm a supervisor, front-end supervisor. And, and are, why aren't you letting me in? Because in the state of California, in the county of Los Angeles, there has been Costco. no... And Costco, there has been no change yes, to our mask policy. Not in the state of California or in the county didn't of Didn't you see the news? You didn't see the news. Nationwide, nationwide Costco... I said you don't wear, need to wear a mask. Actually, that's not accurate. What, what is accurate? So what is accurate is that Costco always, always goes above and beyond when following the law. And the mandate in California has not changed. Okay, so that is just a small snippet of what was posted. And that led me to go, I wonder what this is 
like, is this a snap moment for Ricky Schroeder? Or, I mean, this is the kid that we all remember. We were introduced to him in the movie, The Champ, if you're of a certain age. And he was this magnificent child actor. And what is it with child actors that are, are really uh, sort of falling into this category? It's, it's an interesting moment in time that we find ourselves in. I want to talk this through, as well as a couple other things with one of my favorite people to uh, to have a discussion with on all things pop pop culture and uh, mental well-being and just sort of the trends and dynamics that are impacting us as individuals and as society. We're connecting with Tim Caulfield, who's the Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy. He's a professor of Faculty of Law and School of Public Health Researcher, Director of Health Law Institute at the University of Alberta. As always, a pleasure to connect with you, Tim. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me on. So let's get into what you witnessed there with Rick Schroeder. What do you think happened? I'm fearful for his mental well-being. Well, first of all, hashtag Team Jason. How well did he handle it? I mean, uh, it was just class. It was calm. um, And it was exactly what was needed in that moment. And, and of course, the irony is uh, Ricky Schroeder taped it and posted it uh, presuming that he was the one who came out looking yeah. good, which, of course, as you know, if you've seen this, is not the case at all. Well, I, I think it's a really good example of a bunch of things, actually. First of all, just uh, the degree to which we're, you know, the frustration is out there and the degree to which a lot of the, let's call it anti-mask or anti-lockdown rhetoric is becoming bound up in, in ideology and personal brands. And Ricky Schroeder, as you probably know, is sort of adopted a lot of similar similar positions. So, um, you know, he, he rails against Black Lives Matter. He's talked about um, the United States becoming a Marxist regime. I don't know what his definition of Marxist regime right? is. So, yeah, it, it all kind of folds together. And because he was a childhood actor, he gets this, he gets this platform. And so it is, it is really frustrating. It's weird to sort of dial into because I went to his Instagram page and I was able to watch, you know, it's it's public. So I looked from one to the next to the next and he is obsessive about that slice of society that, that you're trying you kind of outlined there in in terms of the anti-masker the the uh, the anti-everything really and the one that you know each day he posts a video that that marks what day it is you know day 112 of of joe biden's occupation of the white house like he's he's consumed by it and from in my mind i thought you know where are the people who made so much money off of his back as a child why are they not stepping in to help him you know it at what point is this a, a break with reality when it takes up that much real estate in your mind? How do you help someone who's going through that? Well, you do wonder, um, and again, not a mental health expert, don't know what's no, going enough, on in, in his yeah, life. Yeah. But but I agree with everything that you've said. You know, you really wonder um, why he's taking, he's so obsessed with this. But, but again, again, it's also having an impact on, on public discourse, like people are, yeah. you know, this resonates with with some with some individuals. Now, my impression is it's largely been hashtag Team Jason. Isn't Costco Jason trending right now? I think it is. So, it so is. it's kind of. I think it's probably backfired uh, on him for most individuals. But I, I think it also is. A, it's it's part of this incredible polarized discourse that we have now. Our culture is in, incredibly polarized. Canada's not as bad. But the United States 
really bad. And, and I don't know if you saw the study that came out, I'm going to say a month ago, which highlighted the degree to which U.S. social media has an influence on Canadian public discourse. And, you know, even something as fringy as this matters because it feeds into that, that public discussion. Yeah, we are not immune to that. I mean, we, and it's, it's that forwarding of the message, as you said, because of Rick Schroeder in particular, because of his celebrity, he has this large platform. Therefore, these opinions are disseminated throughout a big chunk of the population who are looking for somebody to say their way of thinking is correct. And there's, there's safety in those, those numbers of people sort of gathering together where you, when you see the anti-mask groups, I'm actually going to speak with uh, Jesse Miller, our, our social media uh, educator and expert a little later on in the show to talk about sort of breaking down the type of people that are attending these protests because they're very similar in the messaging. What you just said there, Tim, they're holding up signs that are specific to the United States, but they're, they're marching in Toronto. You're right, and I'm sure, I'm sure your next guest, is, or whenever your guest comes on, he's going to talk about this. We have this, this clustering of beliefs, and there's this growing body of evidence that highlights this. And it also speaks to how important it is to counter misinformation, because yeah. it may not seem like 5G technology is uh, a legitimate uh, idea. It may seem super fringy. Why even bother debunking the idea that 5G caused COVID? If you don't, it can take on this ideological valence and become part of Ricky Schroeder's world, right? Yeah. And and then you have all of these these ideas clustered together, and you see it at these protests. And there's evidence to back this up. You know, and the other thing that's very interesting is, unfortunately, this kind of strategy works. If you can make this more about the ideology than about the science, the ideology will win and people will allow so you to kind of sidestep the scientific reality. And that is exactly what seems to be happening with Ricky Schroeder. And we see that, too, bolstered by the likes of the Tucker Carlson's of the world who are having that rant straight to camera. And Tucker wants everybody to get outraged over that and retweet and share and talk about it and tell everybody because that feeds the ratings and feeds the numbers. And that, you know, lost in that is the real mental health and and. Um, impacts, and even if it's not mental health, but it's feeding into the under-informed, if that's the right way to put it, right? If somebody's looking to Tucker Carlson as being the touchstone for that, or Rick Schroeder for being that, or or I feel safest when, you know, Scott Baio is agreeing with me, whatever it might be, it, knowing, or, or even Gwyneth Paltrow, frankly, Tim, as, you know, heaven forbid she ate bread during this pandemic, those types of things that stir the pot in a real negative way. They, you're absolutely right. All the above is correct. And again, I can talk about a very recent study that found exactly what you've just described, that you know, social media, first of all, other studies have shown social media does stress us out, right? This, this polarized discourse does cause mental health uh, issues. Uh, but also, the more polarized, the more extreme the view, the more likely it is to get retweeted, and it's a reinforcement machine. It's like Skinnerism, right? It's like a Pavlov's dog. <laughs> so yeah. we, we tweet stuff that's extreme because we know it's going to get a reaction, and that feeds the increasing polarization on social media, and that becomes our world, our world view. And yeah. so, yeah, this stuff, it may seem fringy. It may seem extreme. We can almost laugh at some of it, but it does matter. 
Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett, continuing our discussion with Professor Tim Caulfield. He is Canada Research Chair in Health uh, Law and Policy, a professor of Faculty of Law and School of Public Health, Research Director, Health Law Institute at the University of Alberta, and just one of my favorite follows on social media. The tone and the, the, the facts and the science that you deliver on social media, I think, are invaluable. And I really do appreciate you taking some time to hang out with me this afternoon. Uh, Tim, can you give me some perspective on um, the idea that the, the kids and teens, the, the, the 12 plus, if you will, uh, who are about to here in British Columbia, be given the opportunity to register for a COVID-19 vaccine, whether they should be able to consent. I know a number of anti-vax people, parents who have teenagers who really want to be vaccinated. Well, the bottom line is those teenagers, if they're mature, they can consent. And can in most provinces in Canada, their con- consent is both necessary. So you should be getting consent from them and sufficient. And the bottom line is, if, if you have that maturity and you can sort of understand the nature, you know, the risk-benefit ratio uh, of getting a vaccine, then you should be able to consent. And the, and the law errs on the side of, of finding competency because, you know, you want people to be able to make decisions about their own, their own body. Uh, and I think for something like a vaccine, which is fairly straightforward, you know, this isn't brain surgery, you know, this isn't open-heart surgery, uh, this is a fairly straightforward procedure. So I think the age is actually, you could argue, is going to be, for most teen- teens, quite low. You know, certainly 15, 16 years old, and maybe for some, even lower. Yeah, I immediately asked my son when I heard th- that the studies were happening with the Pfizer vaccine and the efficacy being what it is. And I said, what do you think, bud? And he's like, oh, sign me up. And then he said, you know what? I don't know if I would want to be part of the study, though. And I'm like, that's OK. You don't have to be part of the study. He goes, oh, well, I definitely want to get vaccinated. And um, there you have it. So now we're waiting for our opportunity. I want to open up the phone lines here. If you've got a question for the professor. Now's your chance. As I said, a wealth of information, 604 280 9898 or star 9898 is a free call on your cell. And we start with Jeff in West Vancouver. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Hey, guys. Good to talk to you today. Hey, I just had a question for, uh, for your guest there. Um, I was just wondering, in the, in the U.S., uh, in, predominantly in the, in the southern states, they've had a completely different approach, and it seems the rest of the world has. Um, and now we're at a point where I think we've had enough time pass where we can kind of sit back and evaluate you know, decisions that have been made and obviously the, the damage that's been happened. And I just reading today how um, there's zero deaths reported in the state of Texas uh, due to COVID for the first time. Uh, I watched the uh, the boxing match of the week, Canelo Alvarez. There's 75,000 fans there. Watched the UFC in Florida the other night and, you know, 20, 25,000 fans. Why is it that, um, you know, we sort of, anybody, whether it was CNN, whether it was this network, whatever it was, scoffed at the fact that Texas was opening up as, you know, there's just going to be massive deaths and everything. And here we are three or four months later, and that's simply not the case. I mean, were they lying to us or was our approach, uh, was the was most countries' approach to this just completely wrong? And, and will we learn from this uh, what we obviously didn't learn from the SARS that happened, uh, you know, a decade or so ago? Thanks, Jeff. Answer. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's an interesting question, and um, uh, I think what you need to do is look at what the body of evidence says on the effectiveness of COVID restrictions. So now, 
this caller is exactly right. We do have a, a body of evidence now. And that body of evidence actually says, I think maybe a little contrary to uh, what he was suggesting, that the lockdowns or the restrictions, let's call them public health restrictions, do work. Uh, in fact, yeah. there was a very interesting study that came out just weeks ago that found that. Um, and that's been a very consistent finding throughout, uh, really throughout the last uh, eight months when we've when we analyzed the impact of, of, of the lockdowns. Now, the one thing is you have to do them well. The study that came out very recently suggested the best kind, the most effective restrictions if, are the ones that are done quickly, that are done in a targeted manner, that are comprehensive, um, and they're held long enough. Um, more ad hoc approaches, less effective, as you can imagine. So why do we see this kind of jurisdictional variation? Well, there's a whole bunch of reasons going. Uh, one has to do with vaccination rates. Uh, the United States has actually been quite effective. As you guys know, they had a yeah. lot of stumbles, <laughs> a lot of stumbles last year. But their rollout has been you know, pretty impressive. Weather has an impact. Um, so many other kinds of variables that can give the impression that um, one jurisdiction did better than others. So that's why it's, you have to be very careful not to cherry pick, as is often said in, in, in research, you know, a particular jurisdiction that you like the outcome for and you like their political leanings. And so I'm going to pick that one as my example. You re- with something especially as complex of how we respond to a pandemic, you've got to look at the entire world and get as much data points as you can. Having said all that, I do think we need to be open-minded going forward. We need to learn uh, about what was effective. When did we go too far? You know, when were the restrictions more than, than was required? So I do think we need to be open-minded about when we're evaluating our approach. But I think in total, if you look at all of the evidence that available to us, the restrictions matter, especially if those restrictions are, are implemented uh, in a logical manner. And cannot discount the impacts of widespread vaccination. I mean, oh, it's, you know, that's vaccine, vaccines are just really, that's what's going to get us out of this. My daughter yes. actually goes to the to school in the States and she goes to a university where I'm not making this up over 90% of the kids have both their vaccines already. Wow. Yeah. And so oh, like that normal. gives me so much hope, like normal. <laughs> We're going to get there. Tim, thank you so much for taking some time out for us today. I appreciate it more than you know. My pleasure. And thank you for everything, Jody. Jody Vance in for Jill on this Monday. I don't know about you, but this weekend really gave me that taste of summer, that taste of hope that perhaps over the last 14 months we haven't really had wanting to maybe go to the beach or head down to the lake, wherever you might be in beautiful British Columbia on a hot summer's sort of spring day, we can uh, always flood to somewhere fabulous associated with water. So we thought, okay, we should probably have a conversation about water safety. And the the two things dovetailed quite um lovely in a lovely way for me over the weekend i had the distinct honor and opportunity to host the virtual uh, awards for the life-saving society of bc and the yukon branch and basically the this award ceremony the 109th annual actual commonwealth honor and rescue award ceremony was all about people that i'd reported on in news stories or heard in our news over the course of the last year volunteers and regular civilians who had saved the lives of citizens who found themselves in peril in peril on or around water uh, and and the lessons we can learn 
from that. And it just, it was so moving. And I want to congratulate all the the medal and award winners and all the volunteers who have done so much uh, to save lives across BC and the Yukon. And I want to bring in Dale Miller, who brought me on board, uh, the executive director of the Life Saving Society. Dale, thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks, Jody. I want to do full full disclosure because it was actually you and I doing exactly this. Uh, was it a year ago or two years ago, I think, that I interviewed you with the weather warming up and talking about tips of lifeguarding and life saving? And uh, we hit it off because I, I learned so much from you. So, so many tips that we don't know that we must be on top of to, you know, avert tragedy. The possibility of tragedy around water is so significant. Yeah, it is. And in fact, it was the middle of last summer, Jody, that we chatted, and it was because there had been a drowning. So it was last I'm very summer, pleased right. to talk to you uh, right now to hopefully prevent those drownings this year, because we know long weekends coming up, weather's supposed to be nice, and uh, everybody's going to want to be out on the water, as they were this weekend too. But uh, our long weekend is kind of the unofficial start to summer and boating season, and so... Uh, yeah, anything we can do to prevent the type of stories that uh, luckily we were able to reward people for making rescues from. Uh, but there's many others, too, that are not as successful. Yeah, the tragic ones where you can look back in hindsight and say, if only they were wearing a life vest, if only they had a personal flotation device on. And Dale, I have to share the story for me. I'm that mom. I'm the mm-hmm. mom who, with my son, always, you know, sw- swimming is a life skill. We, we need to learn to swim. That was something that my mom instilled upon me. But going out boating, even with those who say, no, 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 I'm, I've, I grew up on this lake and I've always driven this boat and I got this. He doesn't need a life vest. I'm the mom who says, no, he's not going on the boat without a life vest. I mean, there's so many people that are lackadaisical around PFDs. What can we say to that? Well, I think, you know, one of the rescue stories from the weekend is a stark example of it, where you have a young fellow from Salmon Arm by the name of Cody Crabbendam, who was wearing a life jacket and saw another boy of similar age in trouble and jumped in and rescued him. That boy did not have a life jacket on. So there's your contrast right there in in one luckily successful story. But, you know, there, there are too many that happen each year that uh, are not as successful. So, we want to cut those down to zero if we can. Can you reiterate the age of Cody when that happened? He was seven years old. This was last seven. summer at uh, Sycamore Beach on Shoe Swap Lake. You've got to let that sink dramatic. in. Right off the end of the dock, right? It mm-hmm. takes just mm-hmm. a minute for that tragedy to strike and the panic to hit. And the story around Cody, who does not want to be called a hero, he gets a little bit shy when we call him a hero, but he is one. And we hear that about, you know, surfing in Tofino. Of course you want to go surfing in Tofino, but mm-hmm. could you get yourself out of a riptide? You know, how good of a swimmer are you really? Oh no, I surf all the time. It's one of those things where you, you know, that, that second thought of, of mm-hmm. erring on the side of caution could be one that saves your life. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, you hit on an excellent point there because a lot of people will take the swimming lessons and, uh, you know, they get to a certain level and they think they're a pretty competent swimmer. Well, they may be in an indoor swimming pool, but put them, put anybody uh, into a situation where you've got cold water, so that initial shock, and many of our lakes are cold even into the summer, 
uh, and and add to that the the panic and and other circumstances and and that's where just about anybody can unfortunately get themselves in trouble. Okay, give us some one hundred and one here. Give us some life saving skills. If I was to find myself falling, let's say out of a boat, or my my canoe flips over and I don't have a PFD on, you know, mostly we would immediately panic. How am I going to get back in that boat? I'm too far away from shore. What am I going to do? Thrash, flail, run out of air. There are ways that 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 instant, those first instincts. What what do we need to do to calm ourselves and and right ourselves to put us in a position of surviving? Yeah, and one of the programs we have is called Swim to Survive, and it's not meant to be swim lessons. It's meant to be those three basic skills that might help you when you get into a situation that you've just described. And so skill number one is to orient yourself in the water. Uh, Look around, see what your situation is, take a few breaths and and calm yourself and just make a decision on on what you're going to do. The second piece is to have some skills to keep yourself afloat. Now, if that's a, you know, treading water, uh, ideally a life jacket. Yeah. And then the third skill is some method of of traveling to safety. Now, if you're on a boat and you, in that first minute, you realize that you're a long way from shore, you're not going to swim to shore or, or swim anywhere. You're going to stay with the boat if you can. Right. But certainly that, that third skill of being able to, I mean, if, even if it's just a, a dog paddle, but you've calmed yourself, you've looked at your situation, and, and you're able to move towards safety, uh, those are the three skills that we teach in the Swim to Survive program and that we hope uh, people would think about and, and learn uh, when they get into a situation. The Swim to Survive program is uh, part of the event that we did this past weekend, and there is a uh, 50-50 draw and an auction that is ongoing until Wednesday, right, Dale? That's right. Yeah, till the end of the day Wednesday, we're looking to raise some funds for the Swim to Survive program. We want to offer it at no charge. To, to children, youth, adults, uh, new Canadians, uh, all kinds of communities that, that need this kind of training. And uh, we, we think it'll help save lives. Uh, if people go to lifesaving.bc.ca, they will see the link there to the auction, some great items. Uh, and then there's a 50-50 draw as well. If, if they don't fancy any of the items in the auction, they can always donate to the cause through the 50-50 uh, ticket draw. I think it's just brilliant that this is all about offering the life-saving uh, skills that are so, so important, particularly here in beautiful British Columbia. Obviously, we have so many, uh, so much access to lakes and rivers and the ocean, obviously, not to mention indoor or outdoor pools and uh, making sure that our, our skills are up to par, particularly after we have all had this time where we haven't maybe had the access to swim as much as we might have in, in years past because of COVID-19. I know I'd be probably a little rusty. Yeah, and that's one of the fears right now is that uh, children have not had the opportunity to be in swim lessons or our Lifesaving Society lessons as well uh, for well over a year now. And and I'm not sure when that's going to restart, hopefully with our outdoor pools, some of which are are opening uh, this weekend, but uh, no, there, there's definitely been a gap there that uh, certainly has some concern. Jody Vance in for Jill today. Dale Miller is my guest. He is the executive director of the Life Saving Society of BC in the Yukon. And Dale, I got to tell you, I've not seen the phone lines light up like this. My Twitter's exploding. I got Trev, who's a regular listener, saying, I was in my early 20s. I fell off a boat around midnight just off of Gabriola. It was winter, no life jacket. I had boots and a parka. 
Knowing how to float and not panic saved my life. Wear a life jacket, please. I am retweeting you, Trev. Thanks for listening. So, Dale, lots of people wanting to uh, to chime in here and have a chat with us. So let's go straight to the mm-hmm. phone lines here. Jerry in Mission. You're up first, Jerry. Welcome to the show. Oh, th- hi, Julie. Um, yeah, I just thought I'd, uh, I was listening to your program. I was kind of brought some memories back about one uh, one day I was up uh, Brome Lake up near Squamish there, and I was about 15 years old, and went swimming out in the middle of the lake, and uh, I looked around, I started to panic because I realized I swam too far, and uh, I thought, uh-oh. So I, I was starting to panic. I started swimming real fast towards the shore, and mm-hmm. um, I was just getting tired and and freaked out, and then I decided I'd taken swimming lessons, thank gosh, you know, and I'd uh, learned how to do the elementary backstroke, which uh, is a is a stroke that you do to kind of calm down and um, rest your body, and, you know, you're looking up in the sky, and you don't you don't, don't look at the shore, and uh, because of those swimming lessons, basically, it saved my life, so just thought I'd throw oh, that Jerry. in everybody should uh, I wasn't in the boat or I would have worn a life jacket and uh, you know I'm 15 and probably a bit of a smart ass so little invincible yeah. Jerry thank you for that cautionary tale Dale not unique in that what a lesson not unique at all yeah no I mean wow. well, when we do public events Jody we uh, we talk to so many people that have those kind of stories either they know someone or they've had a personal experience the next question is, so did that change your behavior the next time you were out, right? Yeah, yeah, we for hope sure. I oh, hope so. Or somebody listening right now might think twice when mm-hmm. next to just sort of venturing out into the lake for a quick swim and, and thinking, oh, wait a minute, somebody should know where I am or somebody should have mm-hmm. eyeballs on me or what, you know, what have you. Stephen Coquitlam, you're up next. Welcome Hi. to the show. Hi. Uh, thank you. For, thank you for taking my call. Um, mine is never, teach your kids never, ever to cry wolf. When I was uh, about eight years old, my brother was nine. Uh, my parents rented a cottage in northern Ontario, Bracebridge, Ontario. Nice area. Anyways, uh, my brother, I think we were very young. We, we grew up in the water. We were very, very, very good swimmers at a very young age. But he had a, this crazy idea of putting this life jacket to his back. And he would be joking around saying that he was drowning. And, you know, me being that, I'd flip him over and he'd be laughing, saying, you know what I mean? And I'd feel like a dummy. And this one time he was saying, help me, help me. And I'm thinking, oh, he's just clowning around again. And he looked like he was actually really struggling. He was starting to go out too far out. Uh, so me, you know, swimming over there and I grabbed him. He was gasping for air. And to this day, he'll always remember that. And, uh, yeah, just teach the kids never cry wolves. Get very dangerous. Wow, Steve, thank you for that. I think you just saved a life there. That's a good, good note. Hey, Dale? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's another great reminder. I mean, there's there's just so many uh, precautionary tales that that we hear from people, and uh, you know, we hope that it will prevent a drowning. There are so many people wanting to tell their stories. I love this six zero four two eight zero ninety eight ninety eight or star ninety eight ninety eight is a free call on your cell phone. Kevin in Vancouver, welcome to the show. Oh, hi. I wanted to say thanks for for you guys doing this today. This uh, the timing is actually perfect. Um, I was just literally looking at uh, some sort of flotation device to have with me uh, in the truck in case we're by the water um, uh, today. So the reason I'm calling in is I'm wondering if you can point me in the right direction in case I wanted to take any type of uh, skill building courses on on saving somebody 
when I was a kid, I, uh, I watched somebody drown and, and I think it stuck with me. And, and so, mm. yeah, can you point me in the right direction if I want to sort of spruce up my own skills? I know I have to get fit. <laughs> That's one of the things. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you bet. Thanks for asking. And and we wish that everybody would take some uh, life-saving or even basic first aid courses. Basic CPR is is a great start. Uh, But certainly life-saving society courses where you learn some of those basics in both self-rescue and being able to safely help someone else, not necessarily jumping in yourself. That's not not the first step that we encourage. So your local pools would have some programs. Now, unfortunately, they're uh, programs are currently very limited for obvious reasons, um, but hopefully once they reopen, there are courses uh, from the Life Saving Society, such as Life Saving for Lay Rescues. You don't need to be a good swimmer, but here's some basics to help you in a situation like you're talking about. The other thing quickly that I'll mention, too, is a flotation device in your vehicle. I love that idea. If you were to have a, a normal life jacket or personal flotation device in your trunk, that would help if you came across a situation. There are also inflatable devices that can be used in those situations as well. So um, it, would, it would definitely help if you had something like that on hand when you came across a situation. So much great information, Dale. And I did some swimming around, pun intended, on the lifesaving.bc.ca website. And there are some excellent pointers there to be had. I wish I could get to all the phone calls here. Please call the buzz line, share your stories. This is a subject matter that we should do again here on the show for sure. Thank you for sharing your stories, your cautionary tales. And thank you, Dale Miller, uh, for being a part of the program today. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, Jody, for helping get the word out. This is important.